against all odds, you're back. Despite the last two episodes of this series, you're here for the third. I'm humbled. As your reward, today, I really will tell you how our party switched. Let's start with a recap of the first two episodes of this series. The first episode focused on the words liberal and conservative, including how parties congeal around each of those ideologies, a pattern in our country that goes back to the 13 American colonies. Last week's episode then walked you through the evolution of our two-party system. During that episode, I noted how historians organized this evolution. We covered a few, quote, party systems that reflect the different stages of American partisanship. The first party system, from the 1790s to 1820s, dealt with our first two official parties, the Federalists and Democratic Republicans. The second party system, which lasted from the 1820s to 1850s, is organized around the next battle. This between the new Democratic Party, which exists to this day, and the Whig Party, which does not. Then, the third party system, from the 1850s to 1890s, is the first stage during which we have our modern two parties. The Democrats continued, but the Whigs were replaced by the abolitionist Republicans. An important element of these evolutions was that the regions of the country, despite the partisan transformations, retained remarkably consistent ideologies. Although I determined it was inappropriate to call any of our major parties, then or today, purely liberal or conservative, I did try to isolate a pattern that we could use. And here's what I came up with. We've always had a northern and urban group that wants national political and economic policy, but is usually more socially liberal. That had been the lowercase f Federalists before the Constitution, when they argued in favor of its ratification. And then shortly after the Constitution was ratified, Alexander Hamilton created the capital F Federalist Party, which then collapsed and gave way to the Whigs. And then by the 1850s, the Republicans rose as that northern and urban group that was socially liberal. And meanwhile, we've always had a southern and rural group that wants a decentralized government with power to states to make their own decisions for local matters, but it's usually more socially conservative. These were the anti-federalists in the argument for the Constitution. And after the ratification of the Constitution, they reassembled as the Democratic-Republican Party, and then they eventually evolved into the Democrats, starting with Andrew Jackson, and the Democrats continued into the 1850s when the Republicans rose. And yet, somehow, across the 20th century, the regions of these parties will flip. Today, you're going to learn about why and how that flip occurred. I'm Ian Cheney, and this is Presidential Politics for America. The end of last week's episode arrived at the early 20th century, when Democrat William Jennings Bryan in the presidential election of 1908, lost to Republican William Howard Taft. In that election, the Democrats still swept the solid South, while Republican popularity remained up North. 
However, despite the party's continuity from the late 19th to early 20th century, I noted that the winds of change had already begun blowing across the American political landscape. So, dear and dedicated listeners, we are finally ready for the seventh and final part of this series. Part 7. How our parties switched. William Jennings Bryan is an often overlooked character in the story of America. He's one of only a few Americans who were three times nominated by a major party for the presidency, and he's the only one to lose all three. Bryan was the Democratic nominee in 1896 and 1900, losing to Republican William McKinley both times, and then again in the aforementioned election of 1908, losing to Taft. Bryan's losing efforts had long-term implications for his Democratic Party, which was experiencing a lengthy lockout from the levers of power. One of the primary characteristics of the third-party system was Republicans' dominance. From 1861 through the turn of the century, Republicans dominated the House, Senate, and Presidency. In the 15 presidential elections from 1860 through 1908, only one Democrat won, Grover Cleveland, in 1884 and in 1892 for his two non-concurrent terms. It's in Bryan's platform where, in an effort to win over new voters, particularly in the West, we see the stirrings of the populist, progressive ideas with which the Democratic Party would soon be associated. And it is these ideas that mark the beginning of the Democratic comeback into national viability. Back in 1896, he distanced his policies from the incumbent Democratic president, Grover Cleveland, whose conservative Bourbon Democrats ran the party for decades, but could not rally around an anti-Brian in the nomination process. The antithesis of the business-favored Northern Republicans, Brian favored the working class, a position that earned him the nickname the Great Commoner. His ideas, and his willingness to crusade around the country attacking the moneyed elites in one of the first modern campaign strategies, made him popular with some urban laborers, even in the North, who before had almost monolithically voted Republican. As the nominee, Bryan pushed to move the U.S. off the gold standard and flood the market with silver, an inflationary tactic to help the average American coming out of the Panic of 1893, which had triggered one of the country's worst recessions. Although Bryan and the Democrats were doomed in 1896 and again in 1900, Bryan kept playing the role of gadfly until he was nominated for president again in 1908. The great commoner again barnstormed across the country and won over working-class voters in the cities. This newfound support culminated in a surprising endorsement from the young American Federation of Labor. Although Bryan again lost in 1908, he had won 1.4 million more votes than Democrat Alton Parker had four years earlier, and he eroded the Republican lead in most of the nation's regions the country was finally starting to warm up to the Democratic Party again, and Bryan was a big reason why. He laid a foundation for later Democrats to build a progressive, populist, and working-class coalition. These slowly scrambling coalitions characterize the fourth party system, which began in 1896 
not coincidentally, Brian's first presidential run. Although Brian never again ran for president, he was far from retired. Four years after his third and final loss, Democratic candidates sought his support in a tight fight for the 1912 Democratic nomination. At the Democratic National Convention, where 46 ballots were needed before New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson emerged as the nominee, Brian's endorsement of Wilson was critical. To cement the political alliance, Wilson placed Bryan in his cabinet as Secretary of State, and the two of them began converting Bryan's ideology into policy, a path that began the Democrats' shift. President Wilson and State Secretary Bryan worked together on key initiatives that started the Democratic Party on its slow, counterclockwise pivot. One was the 17th Amendment, which mandated the direct election of senators rather than appointment by state legislatures, as had been done since the founding, which was a win for populists like Bryan. Another initiative was the creation of a federal income tax. Abraham Lincoln and his Republican Congress instituted the first U.S. income tax during the Civil War. However, Lincoln's income tax and a later attempted one were struck down by the courts who understandably saw the government taking people's income as unconstitutional. Bryan, Wilson, and others responded by shepherding through the 16th Amendment, making an income tax constitutional. Notice what's happening? It's now the Democratic Party, which to this point had stood for small government and keeping Washington out of people's business, that is using the federal government to force Americans to do something. In this case, giving the government money out of the people's income. The income tax had the most support in the South and Midwest, Democratic areas, and was least popular in the Northeast, still Republican and still where high earners lived. When it came time for ratification through the states, the Southern, Democratic-leaning states were the quickest to sign on. Change was afoot. So far, that change has been only ideological, and only in some political and economic ways. Southerners were fully on board with these changes and applauded Democratic leadership for securing them. Later changes will not be met so eagerly. Electorally, by the end of Wilson's presidency, when Republican Warren G. Harding defeated Democrat James M. Cox in the election of 1920, the electoral map had scarcely changed. The Democrats were still sweeping the South and the Republicans the North. Even if some Democratic ideology was changing, its geographic base was not. Further and deeper change came during the long tenure of the next Democratic president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In between Wilson and Roosevelt were three Republicans, Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge, and Herbert Hoover, each of whom did a good job keeping Republicans the favorite of big business and other affluent Americans, while still retaining some earlier earned loyalties from African Americans in northern commercial centers. Under the last of those three Republican presidents, Herbert Hoover, 
the Great Depression violently scrambled American government and politics. The Depression began with the stock market crash of 1929, which occurred in Hoover's first year. But President Hoover was seen as doing little to help over his next three years. This apparent apathy alienated many Americans. And when Hoover ran for re-election in 1932, both he and his Republican Party got swept out of power. Roosevelt won 42 states to Hoover's six, and all six were in the still Democrat-skeptical Northeast. Roosevelt earned 57.4% of the popular vote, the highest ever percentage for a Democratic presidential candidate to that point. In Congress, the Democrats won 12 new seats in the Senate and 97 in the House. It remains one of the great routes in election history, and it would take a generation for the Republican Party to recover. FDR's presidency did much to crystallize the party's newfound support. Although historians debate the merits and effects of Roosevelt's New Deal, the country perceived the New Deal positively. By creating government-paying jobs, regulating businesses, combating poverty, and creating social security, the president was seen as rolling up his sleeves to try solving the problem. In time, World War II helped the country reach full employment and a strong economy. The victory over Germany and Japan led to further popularity for Democratic Commanders-in-Chief Roosevelt and his successor, Harry S. Truman. As a result, many Americans became lifelong Democrats. This New Deal coalition made the Democrats even more dominant than the Republicans had been beforehand. The period from 1932 to 1968 saw Democrats win seven out of nine presidential elections, while almost always controlling Congress as well. A total reversal from the prior era. The Democrats' unprecedented success during this stretch gave us the fifth party system. This political ascendancy doesn't mean FDR's approach to government was without its detractors. Classical liberalism was dying, and it was getting replaced by a New Deal liberalism. The old liberals thought liberty came from the government staying out of the decisions made by states, businesses, and above all, individuals. The new liberals, in contrast, thought that liberty came from government actively helping. Without a fair distribution of capital, they believe, no freedom can be had by most of the population. In other words, what good is the government staying out of the economy if few people benefit from the result of that non-intervention? The New Deal is perhaps the most important development in the history of American government, save only the many foundational stones placed by Hamilton and Jefferson. There were, and still are, many who disagree with the philosophy of New Deal liberalism. Indeed, in the wake of FDR transforming the government's relationship with the people, we should take a beat now on the plight of what we now call the economic conservative. The new economic conservatives were beside themselves at the development of federal policy in the 20th century. Income taxes had twice been deemed as unconstitutional, 
And so Wilson and the Democrats changed the Constitution so they could take people's money. And if taxes weren't enough, FDR turned Keynesian, spending unprecedented amount of federal money to create government jobs out of thin air. He also began a policy of fiscal federalism, offering states federal money, often in the form of grants, in exchange for state implementation of federal initiatives. States quickly grew addicted to annual sums of such money, crafting state budgets around them, which chained them to federal policy. Small government conservatives took note, and if they had been Democrats, they weren't for much longer. Corporations, big business, and affluent Americans heavily tilted toward the GOP. This pattern helps explain the infamous 1936 Literary Digest survey in its effort to predict the results of the next election. The Digest used telephone directories and club memberships to contact 2.5 million voters, an extraordinary sample size, with results suggesting Republican Kansas Governor Alf Landon would win 57% of the vote to President Roosevelt's 43%. In the actual election, Roosevelt won 60.8% on his way to winning all but two states, Maine and Vermont, an election vote that trounced his opponent, 523 electoral votes to just eight for Alf Landon. The reason for the error? It was not a representative sample. Only well-off Americans had phones and were members of clubs, and these well-off Americans were disproportionately Republican. Although affluent Americans backed the GOP, Democrats more than made up for it in sheer numbers. Relevant to our topic is what kind of voters Democrats won over and why. The New Deal won over urban laborers who had begun to warm up to the party with Bryan and Wilson. Among those urban laborers, importantly, were African Americans who, after years of instinctively voting against Democrats, finally saw a prominent Democratic leader helping them out. Hoover remains the last Republican candidate to have majority support from black voters. Starting with Roosevelt, African Americans have voted for Democrats. FDR's successor, President Harry Truman, continued the Democrats on this new trajectory. His attempted New Deal sequel, The Fair Deal, was a remarkably progressive push for the federal government to fund education, create a national health care system, support unions, and advance civil rights. Although Truman failed to advance his domestic agenda thanks to resistance from small government Republicans and segregationist Democrats, he did become the first president to address the NAACP, the first Democratic president to convey to Congress the importance of civil rights, and he named African Americans to federal positions, including the first black federal judge. His most powerful step forward was in 1948, when he issued an executive order to desegregate the military. These were departures from traditional democratic politics. We don't need to go back to the antebellum period, the Civil War or Reconstruction, to see the Democrats' racist roots. The 20th century gave us Woodrow Wilson. Whereas Truman desegregated the military, 
the openly racist Wilson kept segregated the White House and federal bureaucracy. Even by Truman's mid-20th century presidency, the Democrats were still the Southern Party, and the South still advocated for segregation. It's during the Truman administration, however, that the Southern base of the Democratic Party began to take notice of their changing party, and they didn't like it. In the same year Truman desegregated the armed forces, the base of his party sent a message. Led by South Carolina Democratic Governor Strom Thurmond, the Dixiecrats tried to split the Democratic vote in Truman's re-election campaign against Thomas Dewey. If Truman lost, Dixiecrats hoped Democrats would realize they can't win without Southern support and future nominees would re-embrace segregationist politics. Thurmond and others re-emphasized the kind of language that festered before the Civil War. The official name of the Dixiecrats was the state's rights Democratic Party. In the next decade, 1954's Brown v. Board of Education dealt another blow to segregationists. In part six last week, I mentioned how Southern Democrats applauded 1896's Plessy v. Ferguson, a decision that allowed states to write segregation into state laws. It took nearly 60 years, but with Brown v. Board, the Supreme Court, citing the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, finally reversed the precedent. The court abolished de jure segregation in schools, and the precedent was soon used to outlaw segregation across public facilities. Small government and states' rights advocates were appalled. Cries of Supreme Court activism echoed across the South. This new brand of liberalism was interfering too much with the states, and a new conservative ideology coalesced around resisting it. After Truman came eight years of World War II hero Dwight D. Eisenhower. Democrats were not surprised that the Republican Eisenhower supported Brown v. Board when he federalized the Arkansas National Guard to usher the Little Rock Nine past Democratic Governor Orville Faubus so they could go to their new school. Southerners had grown used to Republicans sticking their noses into Southern business. The hope of the Democratic base was that the path down which Truman had taken the party would be a dead end. If the next Democratic president could recapture the old spirit of the party, they could resume their political battle with the North and defend segregation. But that's not what happened. In 1960, John F. Kennedy's win showed that Truman's path would continue. Kennedy was a friend of the civil rights community, and Southern Democrats unsuccessfully tried to block his nomination at that summer's convention. Kennedy's victory reaffirmed the party as more progressive than that Southern base wanted it to be. Kennedy's assassination led to an outpouring of support for his agenda, including civil rights, and his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, had an easier time advancing it. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Voting Rights Act of 1965 empowered the federal government to enforce the Reconstruction Amendments that had attempted to grant blacks equality and full suffrage before it was met with things like literacy tests, poll taxes, and grandfather clauses. Johnson championed a new Great Society, 
which legislated sweeping reforms not seen since the New Deal, including welfare measures, Medicaid, affirmative action, and other attempts to proactively tackle poverty and discrimination. As a result, African-American support of the Democratic Party, which mirrored urban support of the Democratic Party, continued to climb. And remember Strom Thurmond of the Dixiecrats? It was right around here that he and other prominent Southern Democrats left the party for good. Enough was enough. Thurmond, I believe, is particularly instructive when talking about how our party switched. And I could have saved you three episodes just by looking at his career. So let's take a look now. He had been a segregationist Democrat for the first part of his political career, which began in 1933 as a state senator, before he became governor in 1947, and then senator starting in 1951. In 1957, a lesser-known Civil Rights Act made its way through Congress, but not before it had been defanged by Democrats Thurmond and, wait for it, Lyndon B. Johnson of Texas. Weak as it was, Thurmond still set the existing record for a filibuster in his opposition to civil rights. He managed to hold the floor for over 24 hours. He had already been frustrated by party leaders Truman and JFK, once he lost his former ally, Lyndon Johnson, to the civil rights crowd, Thurmond had enough of this changing Democratic Party. Whereas Johnson modernized with the party, Thurmond left it and switched to the Republicans. There he stayed until 2003, when he finally retired after his eighth term in the Senate at 100 years of age. It's worth noting that not every Democratic lawmaker jumped ship with Thurmond. The parties had only begun switching the geographic bases. Republicans were still the Northern Party in the early 60s, with Democrats still the more popular party down South. Therefore, Republicans' pro-civil rights ties remained in the early 60s, and the partisan split of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 reflects that. Republicans voted for that legislation at a higher rate than Democrats. And yet, regionally speaking, Northern congresspersons of both sides voted for it at a higher rate than Southern congresspersons of both sides. Whereas 90% of non-Southern congresspersons voted in favor of the Civil Rights Act, only eight of the 102 Southern House members and one of the 22 Southern senators voted in favor. Isolating the 12 Southern Republicans in Congress zero voted in favor of the Civil Rights Act. In other words, the indicator of how congresspersons voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 wasn't their party, but their region. Southern Democrats who did defect, like Thurmond, were welcomed by the Republicans' new standard bearer, their 1964 presidential nominee, Barry Goldwater, for whom Thurmond campaigned. Barry Goldwater, a senator from Arizona, can be seen as analogous to the Democrats' William Jennings Bryan, the main character at the beginning of today's episode. Like Bryan, Goldwater is synonymous with loser. His loss to Johnson in 1964 is one of the greatest wipeouts in presidential election history. Also like Bryan, however, 
he helped lay the foundation for his party's future. His 1960 book, The Conscience of a Conservative, redefined conservatism for the modern era. A love letter to small government, the work skewered federal overreach into the states and Americans' lives. True to his convictions, Senator Goldwater voted against Johnson's big federal initiatives like Social Security, Civil Rights Legislation, and the Great Society. He is the first recognizable, high-profile conservative of modern American politics, arguing that the federal government should stay out of just about everything except national defense. This ideology is yet another throwback to the Articles of Confederation days, where states ran themselves but acknowledged that in cases of war, the 13 states would stand together. Goldwater's vote against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a testament to that ideology, but it also helped doom his campaign across most of the country. Goldwater won only six states. But here's the thing about those six states. Alongside his home state, he won Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina. He had won the South. A Republican won the South. It was almost without precedent. Louisiana and South Carolina hadn't voted Republican since 1876. Alabama and Mississippi hadn't voted Republican since 1872. And Georgia hadn't voted for Republican ever. The party switch was starting to be writ large across the electoral map. Switches don't happen overnight, of course. Many voters maintain party loyalty and instinctive animosity for the other party well after parties' ideologies drift. We've seen several key markers along the road, but there are still some milestones ahead. Democrats' dominance from FDR to LBJ, the fifth party system, had taken its toll on the GOP. Democrats had been winning for over three decades, and Johnson's 1964 win remains the largest popular vote share of 61% of any Democrat in history, besting even Roosevelt. With Thurmond and Goldwater as the canaries in the coal mine, the Republican Party became desperate enough to come at politics from a new direction. Looking to siphon from the growing pool of disaffected Democrats, the Republicans tried a new strategy. This new strategy inaugurated the sixth party system. Recognizing the millions of Southern and rural voters who felt alienated by the increasingly urban and progressive Democratic Party, Richard Nixon's 1968 campaign team adopted what's been perhaps mistakenly called the Southern strategy to win over all those dissatisfied up-for-grabs voters. I say it's a mistaken label because Republicans did not compete for the Deep South in the next presidential election. In that election, the election of 1968, Democrat-turned-third-party candidate George Wallace pulled his best Dixiecrat impression and bolted from the party to run on a segregationist platform. And it is he who wins the Deep South. In truth, Nixon ceded the Deep South to Wallace, who won five states, and, but he did adopt a border state strategy. 
In a year rocked by political assassinations, race riots, and a chaotic Democratic National Convention, Nixon, as a law and order candidate, triumphed in the Electoral College. That included splitting with Wallace every state south of West Virginia, except for the home state of outgoing President Johnson, Texas. The electoral geography continued its scramble. The Democratic nominee, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, won mostly in the Northeast, the old Republican stronghold. It wasn't nearly enough, however. Nixon cleared 300 electoral votes in the Electoral College, and he won 32 states to Humphrey's 13. The Republican Party was back. This strategy continued the inertia that had developed across the century. The parties slowly switched their ideologies, and gradually their geographical bases caught up to them. Two key pieces of data can help us understand the reality of this party switch. One is African-American party ID and voting trends. During FDR's presidency, black party ID, in the midst of a transition away from its intense loyalty to Lincoln's Republican Party, was relatively split, about 40% to each party. The shift continued into 1960, but even then, 22% of African Americans, over a fifth, still identified as Republican. By 1968, however, the number was down to just 3%. And meanwhile, 92% identified as Democrats. Another telling transition occurs on the electoral map. The following 14 southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and West Virginia. Those 14 southern states had voted almost exclusively Democrat from the end of Reconstruction in 1876 through the four elections of FDR. There's then this stretch from Truman through Johnson where their voting patterns are a bit more random as they slowly swing to the Republican Party. Then, starting with Nixon in 1968, those same 14 states have been overwhelmingly Republican, with only Virginia now drifting back to the Democratic camp. What was once a blue ocean across the South has become a Red Sea. Of course, no one can win the presidency with just the South. Republicans have had success in other states as well. Those successes stemmed from winning over rural voters in all states. The Southern strategy goes hand in hand with a rural one, as voters from these areas have historically been weary of corrupt governments and other elites telling them what to do, a position that goes back all the way to the Anti-Federalists. From Reagan's deregulation to Trump's call to drain the swamp, the modern Republican Party has excelled at convincing non-urban voters that the party will work to keep the federal government out of their economic decisions by lowering taxes and standing up to the coastal elites. While also, like the Democrats of old, promising to use government to help resist a changing culture pushed by those same elites. 
these are the opposite positions of the old Republican Party, and they've been used to great effectiveness. Republicans have earned much more success in the sixth party system. So much success that, in times of desperation, Democrats nominated Southern governors, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, to help win back some Southern voters, and therefore the presidency in 1976 and then in 1992. However, even that strategy has faded as the Democrats' new coalition has solidified. Every Democratic nominee since 2004 has been from the North. Republicans now run up the score in white and rural counties to cancel out Democratic popularity in urban centers, especially among African Americans and other minorities. Our last handful of election maps convey this pattern, not by state, but by county. This century, remarkably few states actually look like blue states. Donald Trump won about five times more counties than Joe Biden did, which makes the county map look overwhelmingly red in most states. And yet, Biden bested Trump by millions of votes in a majority of the Electoral College. That's because it became the Democratic Party winning cities overwhelmingly, with the Republican Party winning outside of them, the reverse of earlier trends. This century, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Joe Biden relied on minority and other coastal voters and voters in urban areas. They promised to use the tools at their disposal to fight for things like higher minimum wages, affirmative action, equality, and allowing people to make their own choices on social issues. As you now know, these voter demographics and platforms are polar opposites to the old Democrats. The evolution is complete. One more time, let's look at the patterns. We've always had that northern and urban group that wants national political and economic policy, but is usually more socially liberal. Well, that was the lowercase f Federalists before the Constitution. The capital F Federalist Party after the Constitution. And then the Whigs. And then the Republicans. And now it's the Democrats. And against them, we've always had that southern and rural group that wants a decentralized government with power to states to make their own decisions for local matters, but they're usually more socially conservative. That was the Anti-Federalists before the Constitution, and then the Democratic-Republican Party, and then just the Democratic Party, and now it's the Republicans. And that is how our party switched. I hope you learned something. I'm Ian Cheney, and this was presidential politics for America.